So one of the things as we now step off into the book of Acts that we're going to have to deal with and ask ourselves with each one of these sections is, is this descriptive or prescriptive? And this is what I mean by that. So if the text tells us that Peter, wherever he went, when his shadow fell on the sick, they were healed. That's honestly really describing what happened. Right? But that doesn't mean that God's commanding me to go to the Baptist hospital with a bright light to heal people. Okay, so it, that particular text is descriptive, but it's not prescribing me a certain style of action. And why that's important is, is we draw from the book of Acts how we're to do church, their ecclesiology, what are we supposed to do when we do church? We draw from this how in our personal walk we go through life, and I want more than anything to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts shows me how believers lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what parts of that are telling me, you Tom, or you North Glencoe Baptist Church, this is how you do it, and what parts are just honestly saying, hey, and this is what happened. And that's the question for the next year or so as we barrel through the book of Acts we're going to have to ask. And I hope today, because today's going to be really kind of clear-cut, we can see the difference between those two things. So, the story that we have today starts out uh, with a then. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Remember, last time we were here in the book of Acts, what had happened was, is all the disciples were standing around, Jesus is blessing them after giving the Great Commission, Go into all the world. You will be my uh, disciples, both in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He's blessing them, and then Jesus ascends. And everybody's in the crowd is sitting there going, and all of a sudden, two guys show up and they say, What are you looking at, man? Why are you gazing up into the heavens? Just as he's going up, he's coming back. In Acts chapter 1, it says, uh, Jesus had left them with in specific, clear instructions before that happened. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And so he, there's, a, there's a little taste of what's about to happen. Now, from the resurrection to his ascension, we know because the text tells us we had 40 days. Pentecost... In fact, the word penta, as you guys probably know, remember from math class, means five. So Pentecost is 50 days after the Sabbath. Jesus was raised on the Sunday after the Sabbath. So we know that in between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost occurring, 50 minus 40 is 10. We have 10 days. And so the text that we're dealing with is dealing with what happened in that 10 days. So we start out with then. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now remember that Dr. Luke is writing this book to a Gentile, uh, Theophilus, and he tells them that Olivet is about a Sabbath day journey away from where they're going to the upper room. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that it was about a kilometer. Here's the thing. You could walk on the Sabbath a thousand steps. 
So if a human step, an adult male step is normally about three foot or one meter, that's going to say that they could go about a kilometer. So we know that the upper room that the Lord's Supper happens in that they're going to go to is about a kilometer or less than a kilometer away. Luke says it was less than a Sabbath day journey. So they wouldn't get in trouble for working. Remember on the Sabbath you couldn't do any work and walking around is work. So it was less than what was limiting to them. So that's what that means. So when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So let's count out. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, so now we're at 10, and Judas the son of James. We're missing somebody. We got 11 people whose names are specifically given by Luke, who they are the ones who go up into the upper room. So that's going to become important that now we're, the count of the disciples are at 11. And then it tells us that all these with one accord, were devoting themselves to pray, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they know that the Holy Spirit is going to come on them. And the text says that the disciples, along with the women, Jesus' brothers, and the women, Luke calls the women, there's a group of ladies that, that, uh, that's um, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary of Clopas, Mary and uh, Martha of Bethany, that Luke kind of lumps together several times as the women, the ladies. It's kind of like when my kids were uh, at the ages where one group was in one phase, William, of course, is in the middle, and the other, we had the bigs and the littles. So you've got the other disciples, you've got these ladies, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. So about 120 in all. And what the text tells us is that they were in one accord in prayer. And Luke, Luke had ended the book by saying, after Jesus is raised, it says, and they worshiped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and continually in the temple blessing God. So during that 10 days, this 120 people, the 11 disciples who were left, the women, Mary, Jesus' mother, Jesus' brothers, are all in the, the same room where the Lord's Supper was given, that upper room, and they're in one accord, and they're praying, they're worshiping, they're praising God. We know from the text that what they're praying for is this Holy Spirit that's going to come to baptize them. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to baptize you. And we talked about, when we looked at this text, that baptism of the Holy Spirit, as far as they knew, that's just being immersed in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is taken from them. The man that they had grown to love, the man who had taught them, the man who had guided them is gone. But Jesus has promised somebody's coming, and he's going to completely envelop you. It's not going to just be, when I'm there, I can talk to you. This Holy Spirit's going to be with you all the time. And they are so hungry for that. They, they, they're together in one accord. They're not arguing. They're not bickering. It is shocking to me that you have 120 church folk and they're not fighting about something. But the reason they're not fighting about something, I would argue, because the order that Luke gives it is because they were persevering in prayer. 
And they weren't praying for mama's corns, and they weren't praying for more money, and they weren't praying for a new truck and a pony, and they weren't even praying for their physical needs that were very real or their children to get right with God. What they're praying for is the Holy Spirit to control my life. How much the church would change if we could fill this altar with people that are assaulting the gates of heaven saying, Oh God, please just control me. Fill over me. I can't worry about what everybody else is doing because I need you so bad. The people who can understand the depth of their prayer the most are people in this room who's lost someone that they love dearly. Jesus is gone. They're worshiping him, but they want him back. And they want what he's promised. And so all they can say is, oh God, please. And so together, they are persevering in one accord in prayer. I do want to point out before we move on from this that one of the groups of people is Jesus' brothers, and that's a miracle. In fact, the last time in the Gospels we see Jesus' brothers, this is what is said. Jesus had gone home. The crowd had gathered around him so that they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, we look down at, at the brothers, and, and I, uh, the brothers that are listed out in Matthew are James. Um, let me see if I can remember this, because there's more than I thought, actually, from, from uh, let's see, it's James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, so at least four of their brothers. Now, we've joked, and it's almost a comedy bit, um, It'd be rough to grow up with Jesus as your older brother, right? It would just be rough. I mean, when my kids were growing up, we, we talked the other day about how you could ask Molly who started World War II, and she would point to Emily and go, Emily did it. Right? Well, they couldn't do that with Jesus. Why can't you be like your brother? I mean, if you run out of grape juice, bam, he's got it. He's on it. But here these four guys grow up, and he was a good kid. He never sinned. We know that. We know, and they must have heard from their mom and dad because my kids have heard our life stories so much that I can start to tell somebody a story and they'll roll their eyes collectively. They know the stories. Oh my gosh, do we have to hear that one again, right? So they had heard the story about how when Jesus was 12 years old, he had astonished the people in the temple because of his grasp of Scripture. They knew. But still... He had taken over the family business. The text that lists them out says, hey, isn't this just Jesus? This is, this is Joseph's son, the carpenter. The carpenter guy's son. That's, who, that's all this is. And so here they'd grown up for 30 years with this guy who was normal. He was a carpenter. He built houses. Where they're at in Galilee, they built primarily built houses for the Greeks that lived around. It was little Jewish villages that would be co-located to big Greek uh, places. And so they could go in and they could build houses. He was a carpenter. And then all of a sudden now, he shows up back in town and he's saying that he's God. No wonder the brothers thought he's lost his ever-loving mind. If all of a sudden your brother called you up and said, just let you know. God's called me as a prophet, 
and I'm going over to Children's Hospital today, and I'm going to heal everybody. You would say, before you go, let's sit down and talk. You know you would. So the brother's acting completely natural and normal. The difference is, is that because they're his brothers and their mama was there, they knew that Jesus died. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul is listing out Jesus' resurrection visitations, it says that Jesus appeared to James and then all of his apostles. See, I might think that my brother's lost his mind, but if I saw him die and the next day he came and talked to me, I'm the one that's losing my mind now, right? So they believed. In fact, when James writes his book, the book of James, he refers to Jesus this way. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's his brother. He got saved. And he got saved the same way that you and I do. He saw that there was nothing he could do to earn his way to God and that Jesus, his brother, was the way, the truth, and the life and nobody comes to the Father but by him. And James got saved, gloriously saved. And so now he's in that room with 120. So the 120 are around. Peter gets up to teach and says, Brothers, we got a problem. Now, before we get into that, I want to kind of flip-flop because in the, the middle of Peter's speech, Luke gives us a little parenthetical statement about Judas. He's already counted them out. We're, we're short one. Theophilus, uh, Theophanes, the one who this letter's written to, doesn't know the rest of the story because the last we saw Judas was in Luke, and Luke, he goes over, gives Jesus a kiss, and then he's gone, right? And so we have in the text, if you're looking at your Bibles, this little aside. Peter teaches for a little bit, Luke gives us an aside, and then Peter teaches for a little bit more. So I want to take the aside first, because this parenthetical is added in here by Luke. And he says, now this man, Judas Iscariot, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Dr. Luke is giving us some deets. We're getting some very specific information. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. Now here's, we've talked a little bit before about how the History Channel will sometimes throw out, even the Gospels can't agree on the story. We've got an apparent contradiction because the book of Matthew tells the story of Judas this way. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And Judas throws down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple and departs, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful for us to put in the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as the burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what is spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. As R.P.C. Henson said in his commentary on the book of Matthew, they both can't be true. 
is what he said. But is that right? Matthew and Luke have some things that seem to be different. Luke says in the book of Acts that Judas bought the field. Matthew says that the high priest bought the field. Luke says that he uh, fell headlong and burst open. Matthew says that he hanged himself. Well, according to this guy who's got a lot more letters after his name than I do, Dr. Henson says, well, they can't both be true. But remember, we're dealing here with a narrative, stories, not a biography. And they absolutely could both be true. First of all, let's look at the story synthesizing both. Judas thinks, and the Bible leaves us no doubt what his motivation was. He wanted some money. That was his motivation. So he betrays Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. He thinks they're going to arrest Jesus, and then everything's going to be fine. Jesus is going to go to jail for a little while. He's going to forget this craziness, and Judas is going to make 30 bucks out of it, or what would be the equivalent of around $10,000 in our money today. Little money, not a whole lot, certainly more than Jesus, less than Jesus was worth, but still, we see what he's doing. When he sees according to the text, that he was being condemned, Judas goes, oh no, they're going to kill him, and if I'm the cause of this innocent man dying, then I'm going to go to hell. And as some of my kids say, duh. So he goes back to the temple and says, I don't want your money, this is blood money, this is going to send me to hell. The high priests say, thanks to be you. And so, He's left in a quandary. He throws the money down and runs out of the temple. Well, the high priest can't do anything with that money because it's blood money. That's what the text says. And so they go buy a field. But they never deposited the money, if you will, into their accounts because they couldn't put it in the general fund because it was blood money. So they buy the field in Judah's name. That synthesizes both texts, and it's very easy to comprehend that. When I, I remember very well, when I went to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, I had to fill out and sign a, a, a power of attorney. And my dad could do whatever he wanted to in my name. And so he would go every month and he would make a payment on the Jeep. He wasn't doing it. I was doing it. Right? And so since Judas throws the money down, the high priests go and they use that money without it ever going into the ledger, as I look at some of my, my, my accounts over here, as money from the temple... It's Judas' money. Judas bought the the field. So Judas then, now seeing that there's no way that he can have redemption in this because Jesus has been killed, goes to that field. He's looking at how worthless his denial and betrayal of Jesus was, and it drives him to hang himself. Well, without being too graphic... Going from hanging to a person falling head first and hitting the ground and busting open is not too difficult to put together. And a hot Judean day, it wouldn't take long for a body to become. So these are not contradictory. These are people who are telling a story. Matthew is telling the story, remember, to a group of Jewish people who he wants to show the complicity of those high priests that they were so concerned about, well, we're not touching that blood money, that they completely ignored the fact that they just slaughtered an innocent man. And their hypocrisy is being pointed out by Matthew. Luke is writing a bunch of people who wouldn't know the high priest if they sat in his lap, as my mama likes to say. 
And so that's immaterial information to them. But he wants Theophanes to, Theophilus to know who what happened to Judas because he doesn't have the rest of the story. And so he, his focus is on what did Judas do. We all tell stories that way. And so we see this, this agreement here. So we truck on. Peter stands up and says, Brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share of his ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. And here Peter is quoting Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8. And we get a little insight of how important that 40 days from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' ascension was. Because if we really just, just kind of breeze over the text, that 40 days, it seems like Jesus is popping in and out, and he's not really doing a whole lot. He's eating some fish every now and then. He's walking through some doors. People going, oh, my gosh, you walked through a door, and there's not a whole lot going on. But Luke tells us what Jesus is doing during that 40 days in Luke 24. He says, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So we see that what happens on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus walks those two people through the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, to show that it's talking about him so that they felt their hearts burning within them, he does with all of the disciples. He takes the time, and we see a Massive change in Peter, in the way he looks at Scripture and his relationship with Scripture. Before, if Peter was asked a question, he was always spouting off his opinion. Sometimes it was really good. Sometimes it was really bad. Sometimes he would say things where Jesus is going, in fact, Jesus said one time, are you willfully ignorant concerning the law? Let me, let me translate that into redneck English. You have to work to be that stupid, Peter. Because And you're putting in a lot of work. In one paragraph, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my, my father revealed that to you. You're Peter, and on that rock of what you just said, I will build my church. And the very next thing Peter says, he pulls Jesus aside and corrects him. He pulls aside the creator of the universe and has the guts to go, uh, you just tone it down, Jesus, really. And so Jesus looks at him and says, what? Get behind me, Satan. Shut up. Which I, oh, I did it again. Okay, any kids, that's not appropriate. Don't say the S word. All right. We see here that Peter's relationship with Scripture has changed because of Jesus' enlightenment and what Jesus has done in his life. Now, instead of spouting opinion, Peter starts off and says, God's word says... That is telling me with the fact that they're all together in one accord, that they're praying ceaselessly, and that Peter is running to God's word, something amazing is about to happen. So they're dealing with this issue. Peter quotes scripture, and he says, 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so Peter here, he starts at Scripture, then he gives some just good common sense. Who are we going to call an apostle? Okay, so the word apostle, um, and I like to put it this way, lowercase apostle, that's all of us, right? The word apostle means sent out one. And every person in here, if you've called on the name of the Lord to be saved, you, you have Matthew 28 in your Bible, and you are sent out by God to preach the gospel wherever you go. When you're at work, when you're at Walmart, when you're at Lowe's, wherever you are, you're supposed to be gospel gossiping to everybody you're around. You're sent out. But there's 12 people, and clearly that number 12 is important to God. If you read the book of Revelation, you see over and over again, and this is named after the 12 apostles, and this is named after the 12 apostles, and these things are representing of the 12 apostles. So that number 12 is important to God that there be 12, and so there's a capital A apostles of which there are 12. Peter here says, all right, so how are we going to figure out who's going to be an apostle and who's going to be an apostle? And what he says is, okay, they have to be someone who physically saw Jesus raised from the dead, and they have to be somebody that was with us from the baptism. They get to be an apostle. So people who run around and say that I'm Apostle Bill, good to meet you, they're using a made-up name. Because unless they were there when John baptized Jesus all the way to and saw his resurrected body, they don't get to call themselves a capital A apostle. And if we're going to use made-up names, I want to be Batman. So here, Peter, using good common sense, says, here's the requirements. Now, Jesus is going to modify those a little bit, and Paul sees Jesus resurrected on a different road, and... Paul is called an apostle by Jesus, and since he's Jesus, he gets to call anybody whatever he wants to. If he wants to call me Batman, he can. So it says, and then they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. So they put forward two, is that they is the 120. Now see what happened here. You had a person in leadership who said, here's what Scripture says. Here's good common sense about the way we should look at it. Now, all y'all, the 120, y'all effectively vote and pick out two. The fancy thing for that is called a local polity. That group of 120 decided. That's one of the things that we as Baptists, this text is the reason why we do church the way we do. You may wonder, how are we different from Methodists or Presbyterians or the Catholic Church. And one of the ways is that local governments and local polity. There's no bishop somewhere that tells the elders here what to do. There's no bishop that tells me that I've got to go to 12th Street Baptist Church, that we do local polity. So if y'all want to get rid of me, y'all get together and vote and say, get your stuff and go, and then I have to leave. But there isn't someone outside. Now, where does that come from? That's not just made up. That's not just a preference. We look at this text and see that Peter in leadership set forth the principles and then they put forward the two people. It's the same way that we choose deacons, that we choose elders. We use all of you as the people in this church will make those decisions. And this is the biblical reason why we do that. So I just wanted to point, point that out. 
All right, we're still trucking through. And then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 disciples. So now number 12 becomes Matthias. And casting lots is just a game of chance. Um, it's rolling the dice. It's not exactly dice, but it's like dice. It's kind of like, um, I don't know about you, but every Sunday that, that uh, our paydays, we, we get paid on Fridays, and so the Sundays after payday, oftentimes we'll go out to eat for, after church. And you get Ann and I and five adult to kids together and say, where do y'all want to eat? There's, that's an argument, right? You're going to have everything from one of my kids going, I don't care whatever y'all want, and then you go Pizza Hut, and they go, no, I don't want to eat there. That, that sort of thing. Two people are like, I haven't eaten in Barberitas in three weeks, and I'm eating at Barberitas. You know, and you, you've got all that. Goes. So what we did was, is we, there's an app, and I found it that, that's, that's a roulette wheel, and you can num- number all of the names in there. And so I've gone through, and I've met Trey Ragazzi's and Golden China and all that. And so we spin the wheel. We're going to Moe's. It's just chance. They're doing that. They went from common sense, God's word, common sense. They prayed about it. Local polity, and then they just depended on God. Now, we asked the question, we started out with prescriptive or descriptive. See, I'm going as far as I thought I had. Man, I got plenty of time. Okay. So, again, let me hammer home what that means. I, I'm, y'all saw some of you who are in here. When I, uh, when I do a baptism, I wear waders. I don't. Uh, because it's just, if you're sopping wet when you get out, it just takes longer to get dressed. It, it it's just can cause all kinds of problems, so I'll wear waders. So last time we did a baptism, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, the waders were leaking in the seam right in here. And so I thankfully had on uh, dark blue pants so that nobody knew that I looked like I had peed all over myself. Um <laughs> But I was, my pants were sopping wet after, and, and I was supposed to go in that three-week interment and buy a new set of waders. I forgot things happened. So today, when I walk in there, I'm like, okay, I'm going to outsmart the leaky waders. And so I wore a pair of shorts underneath. Well, dry rot is unforgiving, and so now the waders have leaked so much that by the time I was done with the second baptism, my boots were full of water. And so right now, I've got squishy socks on. It's not because I like squishy socks. It's not because I like to have now tepid water in my shoes. It's just, that's just what happened. I'm just describing it. Now, sometimes in church history, people have heard stories like that, and they go, well, a really spiritual person would then wear wet socks when they preach. And they use that as a way. So Matt goes to his next pastorate, and he learned from me. And so he goes, and he, he soaks his socks every Sunday before he preaches. Because he heard that I preached that sermon that the Lord really used with wet socks. That's happened throughout church history. I've shared with you the missionary who went to Africa. And everybody who came up to speak, they would come up, and they were going to give the announcements. They would turn and put on this sports jacket. 
And they would get up and they would say, uh, we're going to have the women's tea at, uh, next Saturday. And so y'all try to be here. And then walk away from the pulpit, take the holy sports jacket off and hang it up. And then go sit down. And the next person who came up to pray would put the holy sports jacket on and come over. And they would say, let's pray now if you will bow your heads. And they would pray and then they would take the holy sports jacket off and hang it up and go sit down. And when the preacher came up, he took the holy sports jacket and put it on. And so this American who's visiting like, what is up with that jacket? Well, the, the guy who led us to the Lord always wore a jacket whenever he preached. And so that had put in the DNA of that church plant that a sports jacket was required to stand in front of God's people. There's a particular affectation in prayer in China today where people pray. Now, I'm not saying that any Baptist ever put on a prayer voice. You ever, you ever had somebody, we joked about this before, who they're sitting around talking about, hey, I got that F-150 that my granddaddy gave me, and I got to work on that. Hey, brother, can you pray? Our Father God, blessest thou this groupeth of peopleeth, right? And you're like, who is that? Why have all of a sudden have we shifted into Elizabethan English? So in China, they have a prayer voice that has a lisp to it, the equivalent of a lisp. And where it came from is Watchman Nee couldn't afford false teeth. And so he had borrowed from someone who'd passed away his old false teeth. And they didn't fit his mouth. And so whenever he preached and prayed, he had the clicky sound that was going on in his mouth from those teeth flopping around. And so that's a super spiritual sound. Because Watchman Nee led thousands of people to the Lord. And so that's descriptive versus prescriptive. We look at this story and we go, well, that's how Paul, uh, Peter, and them chose Matthias. And that's important information that we know who Matthias is. Now, you really want to get a group of, of uh, Bible students in a battle if the 12 names of the 12 apostles are on the foundation of the New Jerusalem. Is it Matthias on the corner or Paul? I don't know. I'll leave that with y'all. Um, but what do we take from this? What is this prescribing for us when you've got a decision, when you've got something going on in your heart? Here we have a decision-making process that God's Word lays out. First, the general leading of Scripture. If you've, you go, I, I need to, to find God's will about this. I, I need to take a, this particular job. And I don't know whether I need to take it. Well, the first step is search God's Word. If you're working for a place that sells porn, the answer is no. Because God's Word tells you that. If you're working for some place that abuses people or, or, or hurts people, you can't work there. Because God's Word leads no. So in any decision we make, the first thing we do is we go to God's Word. And if God's Word contradicts it, we've got our answer. You know what? Sometimes we don't like the answer. And so we try to justify it in our mind. We, I can, when, and whenever someone comes to see me and they're justifying things, they're trying to find a way to twist God's word to do what they want to do, I can hear the hiss of the snake in the back of my mind saying, did God really say? So if God's word says something, that's what he means. And usually, it's like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are all monosyllabic. They're only one-syllable words because God knows we're kind of dumb. Murder? No. No. Don't do it. Adultery? No. Just, just love me, okay? 
So first we go to God's word. Then we use the good common sense that God gave us. Peter just laid out, hey, why don't we do it this way? This just makes sense. If I say God's going to protect me, and until I fulfill God's will, I am indestructible. And so I walk down the middle of 431 back and forth to home every day. That's stupid. And we do that sort of thing all the time. Pray as if nothing else will will matter and then take your medicine. So first, we go to God's Word. Second, we go to just common sense. God gave us our brains. uh, David prayed for the gates of Jerusalem to be strengthened. And then he hired some folks to get out there with some hammers. We see both. C. We pray. The text says that they chose the two people and then they prayed. We're not praying that God would agree with what we want to do. We pray God. And I will say, there was a missionary in the 19th century. Her name was Amy Carmichael. And I remember as I was praying about uh, whether or not God wanted me to quit my job and go to seminary. And I remember reading Amy Carmichael's prayer, and I have used it in my life ever since then. Amy Amy Carmichael's prayer was this, God, I am not spiritual enough to tell where you're leading. And so I need you to open the door you would have me walk through, close the doors you would have me not walk through, and then shove me through the door. We plead with God. We fall on our face and we cry out to God that he would lead us. So first, God's word. Second, common sense. Then we see them in prayer. And then finally, I'm not saying that you cast lots. In fact, we couldn't find any lots we wanted to. Um, Any lots that we knew where they were. What we see with that is dependency on God. And as Americans, we have a real hard time being dependent on anybody or anything. I'm just going to be straight up with you guys as as a church. Your pastor is dealing with this really big right now. When there's a problem, I fix it. Sometimes it may be in a way that makes people mad, but I make sure it gets done. And sometimes, God allows things to come in our lives we can't fix. There's nothing I can do. And so what that requires of me is looking to my Father and reading His Word that says, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication. Trust me. Rest in me. Stop with your silly worry. It's not going to add one inch to your height. It's not going to add one hair to your head. Stop it. 
And so we're dependent on God. So I guess we could say the four steps of making a decision according to this text. We depend on God's word. We search, seek out God's word. We um, use the good common sense that God gave us. We pray and pray and pray some more. And then finally, we are dependent on God. As we come to the time of invitation, we've had two, two really points of contention here that I want to deal with, or two places where the text meets my heart. One is we see them in this upper room, this, 120, this group of 120 people. Maybe I can say a sentence. Hope, thankfully, I don't have a job where I have to communicate. Um, we see this group of 120 people who are desperate to see the Holy Spirit move in their life. I'm praying for this church that that would happen to us. They only had to fast and pray like that for 10 days. 10 days. And God's Holy Spirit fell on them. And it wasn't a year until it was said of this group of people. These people who have turned the world, world upside down have come here. This 12 group of people that once Jesus is taken to the cross, the text says the shepherd is hammered and the sheep scatter. They run afraid. After the Holy Spirit comes into their life, they are boldly marching into cities and saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And they are turning the world upside down. If we could get past ourselves and our little petty things that we think are so important that in the light of eternity are not, and we come down to this altar and we grab the horns of the altar and we say, Oh God, please baptize me in your spirit. Immerse me. Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. And the other is, is some of us have decisions going on in our lives. And you know what we're doing? We're trying to figure it out. We're whiteboarding it. I'm the king of well, this and this and writing it out. And here's the pros and here's the cons. And you have yet to really actually bow your head and say, God, I don't know what to do. I need you to guide me. So if you're in either one of those positions, this altar is open. Father God, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and the obedient hearing also. In Jesus' name, amen.